real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we're just going to be talking about some use of force and reform. Maybe debunk a myth or two. And for that, I've got Al Arsenault on the program. Al served 27 years with the Vancouver Police Department. With his final year spent walking the Skid Road beat as Police Officer of the Year. Highly decorated and innovative, Al also cre- co-created both Odd Squad in 1997 and the Police Judo Program in 2010. He has lectured and taught seminars on topics such as drugs, weapons, tactical communications, and police use of force in Canada, the United States, Switzerland, Taiwan, and China. And we won't hold it against them if they come over here and start kicking our ass. But <laughs> Al is a lifelong martial artist since 1971 with extensive street policing experience in the rough part of town. And he's also done plainclothes, undercover, and surveillance work. Al has given expert evidence on various weapons. He's authored several books on martial arts. And at the end of 2023, he's going to be embarking on a year-long world tour to study police use of force training. Which sounds super cool. So welcome, Al. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Let's uh, start kind of at the beginning and tell us just about yourself, where you grew up, how you came into uh, being this expert in martial arts. So kind of give us the journey in between. Sure. I, well, I was uh, I was actually born in in, uh, in Vancouver. I live in Port Moody right now in uh, British Columbia. But I was born in uh, Vancouver. And uh, when I was about two, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, and my mother, uh, they're both deceased now. So my mother, um, she uh, said, well, you got to pick between me and um, the bottle and your brother. His brother was uh, also deceased he died in the skid road he spent his entire life in skid road of vancouver frank my uncle wow and um and uh, he chose uh, he chose my mom and then we went to uh moved to toronto and i did my public schooling in toronto and then my high schooling in north bay ontario it's 220 miles north of toronto and then we did five years of uh high school in those days and then um I took a year's uh, leave or leave of absence, a year year off between going to uh, university, and I, I worked up in the oil fields in in northern Alberta doing uh, lineman work, you know, lineman groundman work, because all the uh, all the uh, pump jacks, you know, the things the donkey heads that go up and down, yeah. they, they're 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 run on uh, propane until um, they can get electricity, and so we were draw, bringing in the lines uh, so they could uh, suck the oil out of the ground uh, electronically, electrically, I should say. And uh, so I, I did that. I put myself through uh, through university, uh, you know, all the way th- uh, when I went to uh, McMaster University for five years. It's a four year program, but a really good uh, party life, uh, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I passed. I passed. There. I got a double honors degree in geography and geology. That's why I say I spent an extra year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, uh, I ah, you know what? I'm too much of a socialite to be traipsing around the bush, you know, making geological maps and stuff and prospecting. So uh, I went to Queen's University to uh, I got a Bachelor of Science there at McMaster. And I went to a year at Queen's University to get my Bachelor of Education in Geography and Physical Education. And um, 
then I, I, I came out west. When I came back out, my brother is a year ahead of me. He had a major in a double major in, in um, physical education and music and a minor in geography. And he couldn't find a job at that time. Those are three super different things, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Come on. If you don't want to find, hire somebody, hire him. But anyways, he couldn't do it. And I heard, a, just heard an advertisement in 1979. I heard an advertisement on a radio uh, for, hey, Vancouver Police Department's looking for candidates. And I, I signed up, and, uh, and then four months later, I was a pre-recruit because they really needed um, uh, people in those days. I'm not saying they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. I had to fight 250 people from, for that job. So by the time I came on to the police department, I was uh, 26, 27. So anyways, um, hmm. so, so yeah, so I, I gravitated back to the West Coast and uh, got into policing. And I wasn't sure that policing was for me because, you know, I've never been pro-police myself, 100%. But this is like as you get on the road, so you're out of class and you're yeah. still kind of like, eh, I don't know if this is quite right. Yeah, well, you know, my whole lifetime, I say, why do we need police? This is the naive part of me saying, you know, and it, when it came down to it, people say, what's, uh, what's policing about? You know what? Policing, we're society's babysitters. <laughs> yeah. That's what we are. So when I got into policing, I said, well, this is just babysitting. So and I've never changed my mind, really. Well, I want to ask you, just to go back a little bit, because yep. uh, you've been in martial arts for a long, long time. Yep. When did this start for you? Because I think you skipped a bunch of it. <laughs> my dad was um, um, dry alcoholic, no fun to be around, and abusive. Uh, so the school of hard knocks often came to our house. You know, it's like a, my dad was my tutor. So uh, it wasn't wasn't a, wasn't a fun time for me at all. And initially, I, I just heard a little snippet about something about karate in, in one of the in, the in the North Bay Nugget. I wonder what that is. So I I I, I went and I joined I joined up. As it turns out, my my older brother Kevin was uh, already joined up there. He mentioned it to me, but it was like a foreign word. Everybody knew judo because it was Olympic sport in the mid sixties there. But uh, how old would you be at this time? I was uh, 17. I was uh, 18 years old. Oh, okay. And uh, it, yeah, so I joined up and um, I was enthralled with it. And it was mystical and, and all these other things. And, um, and I was a very talented instructor. Um, and um, so I, I joined up because I wanted to beat the crap out of my old man. Mm-hmm. You know, you lay hands on me again. Let's see what happens now. Big, and he was a boxer. His dad was a boxer. His actually, his dad was a boxer here in the southwest section of uh, British Columbia, the northeast of the um, north, sorry, northwest of the United States. You know, uh, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, and uh, he went by the name of Kid Arsenal, and he didn't have a he didn't have a manager or a ringman. He's just at his own. He'd go into town. Challenge the tough guy, the best boxer in Seattle or whatever, set up a fight and fight him without a ring, without a corner man. Wow. Now, what kind of insanity is that? So he was a real tough nut to go around challenging box, other boxers, you know? You were saying you're starting this, though, uh, kind of more of a, a protection thing for yourself. Well, thanks to Kid Arsenal beating the crap out of my old man. Yeah. My old man passed it down to me, you know, type thing. So, um, so, you know, it's, but I decided, you know, when I, I had a daughter, I never laid a finger on her, never had to, because I had a relationship with her. But, um, 
so yeah, so the, you know, the cycle of violence stopped with me. Um, and, and I, and then I realized that uh, I was enamored with the artistry of, of, uh, karate. And then from that artistry grew the, the realization that, uh, there is, there are other, other forms of fighting, uh, for, you know, quote unquote, self-defense or whatever. And it's radically different from, from what you do in the dojo sparring, you know, you have somebody who's dojo smart, they come up with all this stuff. Um, like, um, I'll give you an example. There's a, uh, a karate BC wanted, uh, police judo to teach them since they knew that we're police uh, about, um, self-defense for women okay. because the, the, the head guy there uh, thought, Oh, our instructors are teaching women, but none of them have been in a fight before. And they don't know about the legalities of using force. Can you stick your fingers in somebody's eye or whatever? So they asked us to do that. And, and, and I declined. I said, no, uh, I will teach you how to um, street proof your martial art. In other words, yeah, high kicks look good. They score points in a tournament. But you, you high kick on the street, it's fraught with problems. Your, your legs, your hands are already up by your head. You could easily catch your leg. You're, you're putting yourself slightly off balance. You only got one leg on the ground. and yeah, It can turn into a nightmare. You kick somebody in the knee, not much uh, re- response to that, you know, because you can barely touch your knee when you're standing. And so ease, the knees are a better target, and, and it screws up your opponent's mobility. So as an example so so i said okay we'll street proof your martial art and then of course <laughs> i think the karate bc looked at us and they're going what judo guys are going to teach us how do you do self-defense in you know it's like yeah. the nose are at a joint right <laughs> and then and, and then uh, i guess somebody from the organization uh thought well it's to get some of the money from public tender you know like from fundraising and whatever and they said well it has to be it has to be put out to tender Oh, okay. Otherwise, they're just hiring hiring their friends, and so they did. They they put out there. I think ten people showed up. I can do this. I'm a master of this, and they all showed up and ah, bragging about what they could do and what they've taught. And so they asked them all one question. You know what that question was? What? Have you ever done this for real? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. All, t- all, all ten of them said no. That, well, as I say, that's one of the issues I see with uh, current use of force, so-called experts that, you know, the news will get. You know, like, okay, that person hasn't even seen daylight, <laughs> let alone been in an actual fight. Right. And that's also part of the problem when we talk about some of the use of force stuff. So those 10 instructors, they need to be street-proof because they don't get it. Yeah. And what started, you know what started this whole street-proofing thing with me? And I, and it was just... Uh, there's Joel Johnston. He's a use of force expert that we actually uh, drew in for this um, series of seminars that we had uh, for Karate BC. But I read in the newspaper, I was in, I was just like in Mexico about four or five years ago, and I read in a newspaper that somewhere in the nor- lower mainland here, they he guy interrupted a bank robbery. He was a fifth degree black belt in karate. He interrupted this bank robbery, and he, he was pushing his daughter in a, in a, in a stroller. And he gave an interview afterwards. Uh, he said, I, I had got the first guy at the counter in a headlock. The second guy pepper sprayed me. The third guy apparently had a gun but didn't use it. And he said, if that guy hadn't pepper sprayed me, I would have beat the shit out of all three of them. No. 
Yeah, if it was a sanctioned bout, it's here. <laughs> yeah, he probably would kick the shit out of all three of them. But that's not reality. That's yeah. that's sport. So you know, it's like our mucus. Rather than him being contrite at the end, oh my god, I could have got myself hurt. My daughter. That's not the time to bust out the movie moves, because <laughs> that's when you get shot. He stepped into something he didn't know what he was dealing with. So um, rather than being contrite, he, he comes back with this. I would have beat them all up if it had been a fair fight. But <laughs> fair being in, in 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 the dojo, you know, in a, in a in an arena, sanctioned arena. But but then I start. This guy doesn't know the difference between sport and street, and still didn't after. It didn't dawn on him. And I said, probably we should offer a course since that, not just because we're judo, police judo has nothing to do with it. Well, it, it comes hand in hand with being police, but we're police. Uh, we know about use of force issues. Um, you know, we have to testify in court. We have to conduct ourselves accordingly on the street in terms of uh, the rules of, of conduct and combat vis-a-vis uh, -vis the criminal code of Canada. Um and um, we should we should offer this service to all martial artists because they're all they're all sports based, you know. And and we get questions all the time. Can can I do this? Can I do? Yeah, well, depends on the circumstances, but they don't teach um, normally the use of force and the criminal code uh, together. They just teach this is our style. So we do this, fuck out your heart, and this kind of stuff. You know. <laughs> So when you came through police training, though, did you uh, did you have an opinion about how they were teaching the use of force at that time? So this is the, uh, what is this going to be, the late 70s, early 80s when you're going through? Yeah, late, yeah, 79, I graduated 79. In, in January of 80. Yeah, yeah I, no, I, they were teaching some, um, you know, uh, joint locking and, and things like that in particular interested me and how to put on handcuffs and, and you know, and, um, I always thought that, oh, that's this is kind of a new skill set for me. And, you know, the punching, kicking, uh, you know, uh, when I when I got into it on the street, I got to third degree black belt in karate by the mid 80s. And I can't really say that I used it directly a lot. Punching, kicking looks bad on the street and it does. It's not paying compliance. It is if you just hit the guy hard enough just to make him wince and go, okay, I've had enough, but if yeah. too much, you end up breaking, breaking stuff, which, you know, when you're under stress, you could easily uh, apply too much force. And it's an indirect way to get the job done, like hitting the guy in the head and saying, put your hands behind your back. Well, you could just grab his arm, put some pain on him and get his hand behind the back. You don't even have to talk to the guy. You don't have to explain to him what do you want him to do. You just do it. Yeah. Because pain is the uh, universal language. Everybody understands it. It's directional. All, all joint locks are directional. So you, you say nothing. Well, what, who, so out there, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different models. And it, right now, one of the debates is whether we should have a, just like a centralized college or at least a national standard of what use of force looks like. Do you think, well, maybe I'll start with that, is, is it a standardized, nationalized uh, expectation of use of force? Is that possible? Is it just, you know, an assault here is an assault there? Can we can well, we make it one across the country? The problem is that police trainers are quite parochial. They they teach what they know. And if you look, sometimes you look at the the background and you see behind them and you see a, it's just a whole bunch of certifications going, oh it's it's intimidation through certification. Yeah. You look at it and say, Oh, 
that's a four day course. It's, you get all up the courses. It's like uh, two months of training. So it's, it's a lot of knowledge of it's only like an inch deep. Mm-hmm. It's an ocean of knowledge, an inch deep. And they don't want to stray beyond what they've been taught or that, cause that's all they know. So that's a problem. And then, so there's uh, a lot of times they, they're, they're teaching in police kind of teaching things that are, are out of date. Uh, they're outmoded they, they're, they've been proven to be uh, not really super effective. You know, uh, it's effective when people are compliant and you can do these handcuffing methods or use of force methods, or you can strike people and it's okay. Now, um, Use of force evolves with the community, you know, norms and, and expectations. So, rightly or wrongly, now people expect the police not to punch and kick people because it's been borne out in riots. It's been borne out in uh, use of use of uh, arrest scenarios, real life arrests uh, on the street. They've gone bad. And I know they're going to go bad, and you do too. You see the body cam, and the guy's a little bit crazy. Okay, he's a little fighting himself more than anybody. And he approaches him, he's got his handcuffs in his hand. Yeah. This is from somebody being non-compliant from the get-go and crazy. And I'm going, this guy is good. I need both hands to control him, to own him, before I put those handcuffs on. This guy's going to do it with one hand. And of course, (laughs) the handcuffs go flying. He doesn't know what he's doing. That's the first clue. Handcuffs in hand. He doesn't know what he's doing. He got to own him before you put the handcuffs on. You see, because police are just normal people, ordinary people doing extraordinary job, and they get under stress. They don't know, haven't learned how to control it. Well, even what, even the stuff you were saying earlier about some of the things you were doing in your training in the academy. So that's in '79. We're still doing that today, which isn't necessarily to say it's wrong, but is there stuff that we could change or? shouldn't be in there anymore. And I get that even society might change their opinion on certain things. But when you're trying to control a human being, I don't think that aspect has changed. It's just maybe people are higher now. <laughs> so now you've got to figure out a way, how do I deal with someone who's in a high beyond belief? Just like you got to know the difference between holding and controlling. Mm-hmm. If you start holding people and they're combative, you're going to get hit. The fight's going to go on. It's going to get worse. Yes. So you got to control them right from the get-go. Your first move, you grab the, the nearest dependent, or usually the arm, get into his blind spot, hold him by the elbow, get, say, a twist lock on, which is, it, you get the guy, you, you get, get ownership, yeah, get ownership of him from, from the uh, beginning instead of striking him and hitting him. So you get back to the guy, mental guy, and, and of course they grab him, and there's a big cluster, and they everybody's got their cages out, you know too much gadget reliance there's three officers there and they all got their tages out yeah what does that say about their training it's no that their training is virtually pathetic and, and people say well here's a myth if you want to break down oh the guy was uh, so high that they tased him and it didn't work on him because he's no taser is not a pain compliance device it's not stun mode where you put the, the you know touch the uh, contact probes to their body that's that's pain compliance. The probes, if they're shot out properly, they got a, you know, like a foot or foot, yeah, foot or foot and a half between them, and then probes stick into the the skin or close enough to the skin that the, the, the uh, voltage can arc arc through. 
doesn't doesn't matter how tough you are. No, it doesn't matter if you feel no pain. It's not about pain. It's about neuromuscular disruption. And they'll fall down. They don't fall down from pain. I've been tased a number of times. Yep. It's not painful per se. It's a weird feeling in your body, but you don't go down because it's painful. I, I, I give expert evidence on stun guns and, and tasers in court, all non-firearm prohibited weapons. But I used to, I used to stun myself or uh, put the, uh, the contact probes against me, you know, just in stun mode in court on my arm. I, they'd be arcing. There's the in two court. chest probes that face each other and it goes, <laughs> that's what gives it that chatter. And you can see that uh, yeah. the, um, ionization of the nitrogen gas that yep. turns that purple uh purple color and they go and then you have the two forward con uh, contact probes and then when the contact probes touch something that's that's greater uh, or less electrical resistance than the gap between the two uh contact or the, the test probes which is about an inch if you touch skin or metal it'll it'll take the path of least resistance which yep. is through those um contact probes how many times have you tasered yourself in court? Do you know? Do you have a rough estimate? Ten times, maybe ten times. Okay. And then, and then one time the judge, the judge, we stood down for a, a recess, and then I was walking out of the court, and the, the sheriff comes up and he says, "Oh, the judge wants to talk to you for a minute." So he's back there in the in the, his robes in the, in the back corridor, and he goes, "Why would you want to put that <laughs> stun yourself like that?" And I go, "I don't know. I find it mildly erotic, Your Honor. Um, you know." And he goes, "Well, you know." It, it, it's not painful. It leaves a couple of two little, like you light a match and you touch it to your skin. Well, it got, it got the point across though. Well, no, no, the point of maybe I'm, I'm doing the opposite because yeah. I'm sending myself. I'm not like in the movies, you touch yourself on the arm, you fall down and you're unconscious. Bullshit. I said, you know, it's like two bur burning ma matches and you touch them to your skin. That's about as much pain there is. And, and uh, so stun guns in stun mode, it's a pain compliance tool. And these guys are wimps. Ah, give up. Give up what? It's not even that painful. Come on. Mind you, I also pepper sprayed myself about 50 times testing products. So I um, can't really touch my judgment. I say you got the, quite the experience going. What, so out there of all the, the places you've been, because you've taught in a bunch of countries, who's doing things right? Is anybody doing anything right? Uh, who's doing it right? Well, everybody's doing it. inherently. They, they try and do things that are right based on what they know or, or who they have in charge, right? So you know, it depends. They pick. Uh, I don't know. They try and pick people who have some street credibility, hopefully, and and um, who have some martial arts background, and and you know, and generally people that others can look up to to guide them you know, in this perilous path that uh, we follow on the street. Do you find like, are there certain programs that are going more towards uh, emulating a certain style or incorporating things like jujitsu right now is very popular? Yeah. Yeah. Jujitsu -ju is, is, uh, uh, is extremely popular, but it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's maybe they have a, a good um, reputation in the UFC, for example. Um, everybody, you know, everybody's cross training now, but you can't say jujitsu wins everything. Yeah, you definitely need to be well rounded. I'm just thinking for police, and what we're talking sure. about is where striking now is. Uh, people just don't like to see it, but it still has to happen. Um, but you, you, if you want like a good, well rounded person, judo or um, jujitsu, uh, even muay thai, like, and the big thing I find, and this is kind of my argument against 
some of the reform pieces that people talk about is I think you get a lot more out of martial arts than just uh, I'm learning how to smash somebody on the ground or throw them across a room. It's a lot of it's, it's really it's not about that. It's a lot about learning about yourself and your limits. And you know what the pain is that you're going to inflict on somebody. You also know, you know, what you can and can't do. So you keep yourself safe, you keep your partner safe. So there's a lot more that comes from that. Um, you know, I, I'm guessing that's kind of similar. View. Yeah, I mean, people pick techniques, not there's no one techniques that works on everybody all the time. And, you know, we have the wide range of officers from four foot 11 up to six foot six, you know. So um, yeah. me trying to put a, say, a twist lock where you grab the wrist and you turn the arm in and the elbows pointed up in the ceiling. Yeah, I find it challenging if somebody's really tall, like six foot six, I'd have to alter, I have to do a, a variation of that, maybe a horizontal twist lock where his forearms parallel to the ground and I can twist them, I can bring them down. Anybody can bring a person down. But so every person, yeah, like a, a man, a woman has to know their their limitations, you know, in terms of how strong are they, how strong is their opponent, and that's all been that's all been uh, resynthesized in in the new criminal code. They used to have all these different uh, charges uh, for uh, you know regarding use of force, and now it's all been streamlined, and, and they look at all the individual factors, you know. Um, relative factors, uh, both uh, the officer and and the offender, to make to see if if the use of force is being deemed to be um, reasonable and appropriate. So you know, if the person's four foot eleven and the guy's six foot six and uh, throwing punches, I don't know. Maybe the officer might might want to draw her firearm and shoot the guy dead because you know. He's going to mess her up pretty good, you know, if she feels not, it used to be, I used to feel threatened, you know, and that was good enough and carte blanche shoot, pull the trigger. Not anymore. It has yeah. to be, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, subjectively, uh, su- must be subjective, but objectively proven, you know, it's like the old saying, it's better to be carried by 12 and uh, judged by six and carried by 12, you know, type thing. Or is the other way around? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah, unless you're all a big fat guy in there. But, um, so the uh, the whole point <laughs> the whole point is that you have to be able to show a, a, a jury, for example, that this alternative that you chose was the one to go. And then, like, if you're four foot eleven, it's easier to justify using possibly deadly force against a really big, uh, violent guy than it is for you know two evenly sized uh, people who are going at it. So. And you you had all your uh, your experience there was on the walking skid road and so you you've dealt with all kinds of people that are various levels of uh, intoxication or impairedness drugs alcohol so what do you find is um, you know are these techniques kind of can you rely on them a hundred percent is de-escalation is that something that's missing out of uh, the police repertoire? Do we well, get enough training? Here, here's it, it, the difference between holding yeah. and then controlling. And then when controlling doesn't work because the person is feels no pain. They're on drugs. They're mentally ill. Then you go back to holding again. Yeah. That's something I, I never talk about because you, you hold. If the person has some pain, you're doing the wrong thing. You control. That's good until they're not feeling any pain anymore. Then you go back to using the arm as a, say, as a tether. 
to, to move him around, to unbalance him, uh, to pull him around, to physically hold on to the arms so they don't hurt themselves or others. So it's, it's gone full circle. But, and I've dealt with a lot of people who've been, um, who have felt no pain. And I've had to use the biomechanics of the body and, uh, to manipulate, physically manipulate people who are uh, otherwise feel no pain at all. And it's scary. It's when you're dealing with somebody, they could be just a you know small guy or big. It's scary. I've seen six officers on one guy and they're getting tossed and around, throwing these guys around, yeah, because they're on crystal meth or whatever. They're super strong, and so yeah, so techniques like that, probably like uh, joint locking techniques, probably we would be ineffective uh, in that they're going to break, break their their own joint you're holding on to it and they do something stupid and you know it's going to break i had to actually had that happen once mm-hmm. um, um my partner toby hinton a uh, uh, long time beat partner he had we'd taken a baseball bat off of somebody who was uh, swinging around at people and uh i had this guy in a joint lock and he he jumped and i would have broken his arm had i not let go 100 percent and I, I let go and then toby ended up throwing him and his, uh, they fell into a wall when he was doing the throw and he actually, Toby actually broke his own hand. So, so, uh, unfortunately I, I feel bad to this day because if I'd held on to him, the guy would have broken his shoulder and Toby probably wouldn't have had to thrown him, but you know, you got to look after the, the welfare of the people when they're too crazy to look after themselves. How much training does somebody need in say police judo or in these whole techniques to be effective or at least when shit hits the fan and you know you're you're in the middle of a full-on fight and you know you're in uh not panic mode because hopefully you're not panicking but you know things are going crazy and you want to resort to your basic level of training or at least what naturally comes to you how much training does somebody need to kind of be at at that level and is this a is this a time thing or is this repetitions? Uh, what is it? Yeah, it, it, if you start with the basics, like if if I were to tell you, like let's say uh, judo was invented okay, for the first time, and and it was, um, uh, you know, judo is all all about fairness, and you know, you grab a one one guy like grabs a lapel, you grab a lapel, the other guy grabs a sleeve, you grab a sleeve, a standard judo grip, and you move around the floor, uh, trying to unbalancing and throw each other. That's sport. Now, if you said, look, they weren't given any points for hitting people. There's a bit of Temi Waza built in the old judo, like striking techniques. Mm-hmm. But let's just say, uh, like modern judo, they don't give you a point for slap, punching a guy in the head, oh, like MMA. So if you said, okay, we're going to allow uh, head punching. All right. So do you think that people would grab each other by lapels? No. And a bit lapel and sleeve because I just let go of the sleeve and slap yes. you. Yeah, I got you by got you by the lapel and slap you. And then they'd be trying to slap each other. And then what would that look like? So you know what? I can tell you what what it would look like. They'd say, okay, they they'd go grab, grab go to grab each other. They'd be trying to grab each other behind the elbow, and then they'd slide into they turn get into that blind spot. Yeah, you know. So they got you by the elbow, cross port like uh, port of arms across your. Arm port of arms across your chest, and you got your free hand, and you'd be drilling them over the shoulder. Uh, that's what it would look like. That'd be, that would be that would be the evolution of judo had had striking been allowed, but they don't allow that. So on the street, you 
Okay, if I just said, okay, you know anything about fighting? This is what you're going to do. You're going to grab the guy's nearest arm, even if it's both hands, you're going to get and you're going to move in behind him here. So, we, so it renders his free hand, you know, useless. They, they can't punch over them. And then when he turns, you turn. So you stay in his blind spot. If that's all you did until the cavalry comes, then great. Mm. So, and, and uh, I would recommend that to balancers, everything. But no, you end up, somebody grabs somebody by the lapel and they get headbutted or they, they're trading punches. It's like in hockey fight. They haven't figured that out yet. But I'm, I'm thinking like, so I'm thinking though, when I remember going through, so I went through depot and then I went through the police training with Edmonton and both times they teach very similar things. But you know, when it came to say, they're showing you wrist locks, things with elbows and stuff. If you're not practicing that daily or with some sort of frequency, you won't be proficient in it, but also I don't think you'll be that that'll be your go-to. So for uh, a lot of people who've never been in a fight, when they get out on the street and they, you know, uh, get into it with somebody that they're trying to control, they're, that's where you get the holding. So the person's just going to hold on for dear life and keep yelling the same command over and over and over, but it's not doing anything. So the, the, what I'm trying to kind of get the, the point I would, I'm trying to get across is like, you need a frequency of training, but you also need um, a length of time. Decent training. Well, and decent mm, training yeah. too, right? You got to have a good instructor who's giving you those real life yeah. examples, not just the nice to knows, the comfort, comfortable ones. So I, I'm wondering, like, have you ever seen, is there a certain amount of training or time or do police have to do it more than once a year at some random training day? Yeah, I mean, it, they've shown that micro training is it works best with cops because they either yes. their attention span is limited, like teenagers. So bet, better off giving in 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 chunks, you know, and um, repetitive training rather than oh, we do four hours or eight hours of training and then we're done for the year. It's better off to give to them a, an hour at a time, for example, or a half hour at a time, or you know, pre parade. Uh, I mean, we used to run. Um, um, you know, parade like just before I retired with uh, Toby Hinton. He actually became my sergeant. He was a uh, my beat uh, partner, and then he be he was promoted into same squad as a sergeant because he was really uh, good in the skid. He spent his spent his whole career down there, and we spent the last decade working together. But we used to do run uh, handcuffing uh, training. There's lots to be said about um, you know training. So like in my book, I. Uh, just arbitrarily identified eight forms of resistance. You grab somebody by the arm, which is 99% of the time you're going to grab, you're under arrest. Um, grabbing somebody by the shoulder is holding because you don't have no control of the arm. They can swing their arm freely. Grabbing by the elbow is holding, but you have an element of control over that arm, not through pain, but just biomechanically. You can, if the person tries to elbow you, you're already holding a shoulder. So whenever forces the force is being leveled at you. You push against that force with the grip on the elbow and the sleeve material or whatever. Uh, the guy tries to kick you, you, you ram the elbow down. So, cause he's got to lift that leg up to kick you and you just jam it down. He tries to spin around to do a hammer fist. You, you, you spin his elbow in that direction. He tries to punch, turn into you and punch across you. You retreat into his blind spot and punch that shoulder or that elbow against the force. So holding, just simply holding him by the elbow offers you some control. Yes. Now, now you can take this other arm and you bring it down to uh, his wrist. Now that everybody knows that is the escort grin. 
and I call it an es- modified escort grip. I don't like getting in too close shoulder to shoulder. Um, but that's a modified escort grip. Now you got them like this. You got, you got a, remember the old days just called, I got the collar on them. Cause that's how stupid they were. They grab them by the collar and say, look, at they're dragged the guy into jail, holding them by the collar. I, I, that's called a collar and arrest. I don't know how those guys survived really, but anyway, so you got them by the arm and then there's kind of eight forms of resistance that he can do. He can curl his arm towards himself. You're trying to get him a straight arm bar. He goes, no, you're not. He curls his arm towards him. Okay. You're trying to curl his arm towards him to get him an outside wrist lock. He straightens his arm or he grabs for your gun, right? Um, he drops his elbow down. You're trying to get his elbow up into a twist lock. He drops his elbow down. Okay, you're trying to drop his elbow down to get him into a transport wrist lock. He rings his elbow, elbow, elbow up. He pushes on you when you're trying to pull on him. He pulls and he pushes. Um, or he tries to punch you with the other hand. Or he just drops straight down like a rock. How many, how many academies teach that? You got him like this, and he just drops down like a rock, and they go, never saw that before. Okay, so, so I've identified eight forms of resistance. How much training do you need? Learn five and act surprised when he does one of the other three. Mm. Yeah. So there's only, I'm, I'm just saying, learn eight ways to defeat his resistance when you grab onto him. Yeah. That's it. Look, if you don't have time to learn those eight kinds of uh, techniques, then gosh, get another job or expect, <laughs> or, or maybe you like to taste the hospital food or I, 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 or, Maybe you're not afraid of internal complaints when you bash the guy. I, I don't know. Just like, is that too much to, to learn? So how long does it take to learn that? Yeah, we in Vancouver, the police department has embraced uh, police judo to the effect that so when you a person hires on, they have to do 40 hours of police judo training before they go to the academy. Okay. So that was one thing I was going to ask is, you, you know, what should police services kind of maybe pay for memberships to some martial arts gym or can they have an extra program outside of the policing? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've, we've all got our, hour. I've had so many power hours in the gym, you know, they, they give you an hour lunch break if you can get it. But, um, so that's basically <laughs> paid training time. But if you don't have the equipment, you could buy it yourself or complain when you get, uh, you know, something happens to you. So I didn't have a, a decent, Vest, well, buy your own vest. I mean, Vancouver, we give us uh, uh, good vests and stuff like that, but other other places, not so. They have to end up buying their own equipment or spend time, spend your own money. It's not just about uh, the physical training. It's also about um, um, the exercise that you get in terms of being fit. Yeah. Your your greatest your greatest foe is is a really wiry, strong guy. That's you know, and, and that's your that's your biggest enemy. Most people who know a lot about fighting, they don't get into fights. You know, like like exactly like martial arts guy. They, they, they got better things to do. <laughs> they're training for their next fight, or they're not the ones that are causing the problem. The one that causes the problem, they got uh, you know liquid courage poured down their gullet, and uh, they want to uh, take take you on. And uh, in, in these guys, you know, if you work anywhere, like in the well, in the downtown east side, when the bars were going crazy, or Granville Street, or everybody's got their own, probably downtown Edmonton, they got your own hot spots where these yep. bars they uh, they they overserve, and uh, these guys come out at closing time, and police in the know, the beat police, you can you can sense, you can sense the violence in the air, yep. 
And I don't know exactly what it is. I, I don't even know how to describe it. But you just know you drive by the clubs and you go, ah, this, this we got to come back here at closing time. It's just the the intuition, the social cues, everything. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it's the kind of clientele that hang out. They give me a certain vibe. Maybe it's the music. So, you know, you just know that you get a sense that, God, this is trouble. There, you, you, you get a sense that there's been over service and you come back and sure enough, shit hits the fan. That's where the fights happen. So we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time. I want to make sure I get a couple things in here. Um, the police judo, judo program. Can you tell us just where that was kind of born out of and tell us a bit about the program? I was actually going to judo class uh, with Brian Shipper, our civilian coach at the police station at night in the daytime uh, in the running uh, the run up to uh, the 2010 Olympics. I got called in from Thailand from a friend of mine, um, Sergeant Brad Fawcett, who was the head instructor at the Justice Institute Police Academy. And he said, Al, do you want to come back and, uh, you know, and uh, be... Use force instructor. I said, yeah, as a contractor, but I'm not, I'm not disciplining students. I'm not doing all when they're in class, I'll be in class. Number one. Number two is I want to, I want to modify the, um, the training because I had recruits come out and I don't think that they were trained properly in terms of handcuffing and, and joint yeah. locking. And three, I just want to be so go in the corner and shut up. So he said, yeah, come on in. So, so I was going to, uh, <laughs> the police academy, the daytime, nighttime, Judo and I, in judo class, I'd say this is what we're doing in the um, at the use in the use of force uh, training at the uh, Justice Institute because some of the most of the people there were either want want to get on the job or were police officers in the judo club. And then I would go to the <laughs> I would go to the academy training and I say this is what we're doing in judo. This there's some really good street applicable techniques that we're doing. And I'm going police, then going judo, police judo, and I'm going back. And so. Um, so I end up uh, uh, melding the two together in is, mm. is in police judo in 2010 with uh, Toby Hinton. And um, so, I mean, the roots go back long before that. We had a police or had a judo club at the police department, but it was basically, uh, you know, a sports judo basic, basically. But um, but they did appreciate they, they did allow some other techniques to be brought in or a strict straight judo club. Well, I think it's. I think it's a a great program and I've looked into it a little bit and, and checked out the website. And um, I think if anybody can, they should always continue their training and take the supplemental stuff. Obviously, the employer is never going to give you all of it, um, nor should you just rely on them. But um, yeah, I do have to get going here because we're just over the hour but I want to say when you, uh, we didn't get to talking about your trip that you got coming up. So maybe when you come back from the trip, we'll have to, I'll have to ask you what you saw. Well, we'll do another day. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I will um, throw up the link to the judo um, and I'll get some other links from you, especially for the books. So yeah, I want to say thanks for coming on and we'll have to chat again. All right. Okay. Thanks, Nathan. I got many more stories. That's all I got now. Stories. I'm... All right. Talk to you later. Okay, buddy. See ya. Bye.